Hello and welcome to episode two of the Talking History podcast with British Online Archives. I'm your host, Jim Chisholm, and today I'm joined by Dr. David Clark, Principal Research Fellow of the Journalism Subject Group at Sheffield Hallam University. Dr. Clark is also the curator of the National Archives UFO Project and has published three books on that very subject, including the critically acclaimed How UFOs Conquered the World. We're going to talk about the history of the UFO phenomenon, the National Archives UFO files, and more generally, folklore and technological societies. But we'll begin, David, with a simple question. How does a journalist and an academic pick UFOs as his chosen subject? <laughs> That's a very good question, and thanks for inviting me on to talk about it. Um, well, it began um, in childhood, really, because um, when I was what would I say about that sort of formative age about between about 10 and 13 when you you sort of got an inquiring mind and you're into all sorts of stuff this for me that would be the late 1970s and I was very much into science fiction read loads of science fiction novels and I watched loads of um, unusual tv programs shall we say Arthur C. Clarke's Mysterious World my namesake and that that really did it for me and I think that must have been about 1980 and I saw I was an avid reader of newspapers, so I was interested in lots of sort of weird and unusual phenomena. So I got into all that. And um, I suppose that's what got me into writing in the first place. So um, I began interviewing people who'd seen odd things, ghosts, flying saucers, that kind of thing in, in my sort of area. I lived at the time of Sheffield um, in South Yorkshire. Um, and um, I ended up actually doing my first degree in archaeology because I was I was interested in sort of um, ancient civilizations, folklore, British um, prehistory. So that's what I did my degree in and I didn't really have any idea that I was going to end up as a journalist but that's what that's what I that's what that's the that's the path I took because um, I was better at writing about archaeology than I was at actually doing it I found. <laughs> so um so I ended up being a journalist on various um, regional local newspapers for a period of about 10, 15 years. And during that time, mid-1990s, I retained my interest in folklore. And Sheffield University at that time, where I did my first degree, was the only university in England where you could pursue postgraduate qualification in folklore. Because there was what was known as the Centre for English Cultural Tradition. So I did my PhD there, which... It was nothing to do with UFOs, but it was on aspects of folklore. And I came to realise that the UFOs were modern folklore. So I'd got that going on. But at the time I was doing my PhD, I was also working full time for the local paper as a, as a news reporter. Um, so it was the era, mid-1990s, when The X-Files was on TV. And it was the, I think it was the 50th anniversary of the beginning of the UFO mystery. So it was 1947 to 1997. And there was a whole raft of films, you know, the Men in Black, Independence Day, um, Mars Attacks. I'm sure you all remember that. Um, so it was massive. It was everywhere. And we were doing stories about it constantly. And because the, uh, the news editor knew I was um, into UFOs and all the rest of it, I used to be the person that got all the unusual and nutty, as they regarded them, um, phone calls. So if anyone saw a mysterious light in the sky over the M1, you know, on, on the way to Meadowall, it was like, oh, talk to Dave about it. So I just got drawn into this more and more and more. So how that became sort of linked to this, um, the business with the National Archives was because of the, um, the introduction of the Freedom of Information Act, 
<clears throat> because at the time, um, there was a pre-Freedom of Information Act, which very few people talk about now, but John Major brought in something called the um, the right of access to government information, which was actually effectively FOI. And you could apply um, to see government archive documents as early as, I think, about 1994. Um, Tony Blair did the manifesto pledge to have a full Freedom of Information Act, but that didn't arrive until 2005. But that, I was I was using this pre-FOI to write to, to the government and say, what have you got on this topic? Because we were being encouraged as journalists to pick a topic that we could concentrate on to generate stories. And of course, UFOs was the obvious one for me because I knew um, from the reading I'd done on this that there was a, a branch of the Ministry of Defence that right from the early 1950s had been tasked by the Ministry of Defence to sort of collect reports on this subject. And no one had ever sort of been able to access um, what they'd actually discovered because there was no, if you wrote to the Minister of Defence about the subject, you'd get a, a response from them and they'd just say, you know, might send you a few statistics, but they'd say there's no right of access. So we don't have to send you anything else other than a, a standard statement that we're interested in this subject for defence purposes. The Americans had had a very um, public um, UFO project called Blue Book that had started late 40s, early 50s and had been um, closed down, I think, about 1969, when they'd awarded the University of Colorado a contract to look at all their um, reports up to that point. And I think they'd gathered something like 12,000 separate case files. And at that point, it was costing them a lot of money, and they wanted rid of it, basically, the Air Force, because they'd never discovered anything that was a, a threat to the security of the United States. So they gave this contract to the University of Colorado who produced this huge study that basically said, they're right, there's nothing to worry about. There's nothing of scientific interest from this subject. So that was the American experience, but the British government had continued to collect reports, even after the Americans had shut their project. And I just thought, well, there must be masses and masses of information there. You know, I'd like to see it, particularly about some of the better known incidents you know like the british roswell rendlesham forest etc um and from the late 1980s they began to open some of these older files because there was this thing called the um <clears throat> the 30-year rule so first of january every year um all the media used to decamp down to the national archives or the public record office as it was then known at kew and you get all the cabinet documents from 30 years ago. And I used to sort of go down there as a journalist and you'd get back like a big list of things. It was almost like going back in time 30 years. And everybody would go for the usual stuff, you know, the cabinet records and this, that and the other. And, and But people would tend to miss the other quirky little things that were being opened. And some of these were the UFO files that were coming up to the 30-year rule. So I used to go down every 1st of January and I used to comb through these files and I used I used what um, I'd discovered from there to make these requests to see some of the more recent files. So that sort of is a very long-winded way of, of answering your question, but I hope it touched on all the main Yeah, we've got a lot, a lot to go out there. Yeah. I mean, when you came at this as a journalist, obviously you had a background of being interested in UFOs as, as a kid through science fiction, yeah. right? And that's exactly my experience as well. And, and that's why I thought this would be really And a lot of other subjects. people's experiences, yeah. yeah. When you went into it as a journalist in the mid-90s, were you going into these interviews 
uh, cases as a skeptic, as a as a believer, as, as nothing, <laughs> because it has a massive influence on what you're going to produce, yeah. doesn't it? And this is what I always find really fascinating about UFOs, and this is what links it back to folklore, because whenever I do a media interview, and I've done literally hundreds, if not thousands, over the years, it's the first question you tend to get asked is, do you believe? And that, to me, is interesting in its own right, because if I was doing a project, say, let's say, on Jesus, did he exist? You know, as a historian, mm. you know, you'd go back to the original sources, wouldn't you? You'd, you'd, you'd sort of talk, you could write books about it and you'd draw on all the sort of archived records and that. But no one would turn around to you as a historian of early Christianity and say, do you, you believe, believe in Jesus? Jesus? <laughs> or are you a Christian? Or they, well, they might do, but I've never, you don't tend to get Simon Sharma asked that, do mm. you? I suppose it's because it's it's a it's a controversial subject, and obviously mm. you 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 study it as as folklore and as yeah. an academic thing. But there is something where when people first think of it, they don't think of it in an academic context. They don't. No. Um, I, I suppose it's a a kind of difficult one to as an academic. I suppose if you announce yourself as you know I'm, a, I'm an expert on UFOs mm. or a, I mean, what's the response in the rest of the academic community? Um, because you're obviously yeah. studying it from a defence perspective or a folklore perspective, but you you must get some kind of <laughs> yeah. I reactions mean, there on. are. I, I have encountered lots of academic prejudice towards mm. it, and people simply have looked at the stuff that I published and just and said to me, "This is not research." Well, how can it not be research? You know, I'm using original documents. I'm producing books and articles because it's on UFOs. It's like to some people that is a subject that we shouldn't take seriously. Mm. But I would counter that by saying, look at the polls, the opinion polls that have been done on this subject in the UK and the USA. Something between, something like, um, up to, I think certainly in America, you're talking more than half the population say that they, they believe that we're being visited by extraterrestrials, and it's something like well over a third here. That is an enormous amount of people. You know, and there's been recent surveys done on, you know, pe why do people believe in conspiracy theories and other weird topics? That has got to be interesting. Does it does it matter whether these things exist or not? The fact, the very fact that so many people believe in that, and it, and some of it is semi-religious that belief mm. as well, has got to be a subject that academics should take seriously and investigate. And and looking at it from the from the um British the government point of view, the fact that that the British and American governments over the years, and it's not just British and Americans, the French have got a, a, a government project based in Toulouse, which is still ongoing. They've spent tens of thousands, maybe more millions of, of pounds of public money. They've employed people to investigate these things, you know, purely from a defence perspective. So if you're even looking at it from that point of view, surely it must be of academic interest. Why have the public um, authorities, the Ministry of Defence, the Royal Air Force spent so much time and effort on this subject if it's nonsense, if there's nothing to it. And so it's obviously a national security interest for, mm. for governments across the world. So shall we start at the beginning, at least in terms yeah. of the folklore? So so yeah, where, yeah. where does the UFO phenomena, the flying saucer phenomena begin and what significance does it have in that time period? Mm. Well, there's two there's two um, ways of looking at this because you can trace back uh, accounts of people seeing odd things in the sky as far back as there's been human beings. I mean, some people would even say, you know, some of the cave paintings are depicting um, UFOs. And of course, Eric von Daniken, what, familiar, yeah, in the 1960s, made a career out of all that that series of books, Chariots of the Gods, where he was reinterpreting lots of archaeological remains as this is evidence 
that you know aliens have visited us at some time in the past. You know how else could we have um, created the uh, the pyramids and which, which looking at it now is a bit sort of like almost like saying well we're so stupid as human beings that we couldn't possibly have done all these wonderful things without the help from gods from uh, outer space and again to me that's interesting. So you you have all this sort of ancient astronauts thing. Um, um, which really is just um, a, a, a modernization of a lot of, um, of of ancient beliefs, where people believed that there were gods in the sky who came down and did wonderful things, you know, and sent lightning bolts. And I mean, there's loads of stories in the Bible that you could reinterpret as um, UFO phenomena. So that you've got all that ancient stuff. And Charles Fort, who is one of my um, my heroes, who was a sort of a, um, a collector of curiosities, who lived in uh, New York and London in turn of the 19th century he was a bit more intelligent than um eric von daniken and he he did very much like what i'm doing which is combing through old records and he found lots of stories about strange airships that had been seen in the sky in the 19th century that couldn't possibly be real airships and he wrote a series of books one of which i remember reading as a child the book of the damned and that had all kinds of weird stories pre-modern ufo sightings and he, there's a line in it where he says, I think we're property, that someone sort of came here and sort of seeded humanity and sort of that we're still owned. And I don't think he really believed that. He was just he just liked to provoke people with weird theories and arguments. So that really got me. And I've always been interested in that. But that's the ancient bit. The modern UFO phenomenon in terms of like the military interest began in 1947. Although even saying that, um, there were the Foo Fighter sightings during the Second World War when um, both Allied and uh, Axis pilots were seeing strange sort of balls of light and objects following them during missions over Europe and the Far East. And of course, at the time, this was of definitive military interest because both sides thought, what are these things? Are they secret weapons developed by the Germans? Germans, apparently, when they were debriefed by, when they were captured, were saying, We've seen the same things as well. We thought they were they were American secret weapons. So there was this thing pre-1947, but in 1947, there was this famous sighting by Kenneth Arnold, who was a pilot in America, and he was flying over the Cascade Mountains, and he saw this flash of light. He was looking for a crash plane, so he was on the lookout for something, and he saw this flash of light and saw this formation of ob objects, weird objects like batwing-shaped like the sort of thing that the Germans were developing at the end of the Second World War, you know, the sort of Horton um, 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 design that they were working on, this sort of batwing shape. They weren't flying saucers. This is the interesting thing. But he saw this formation of nine objects, and he measured them. He, he was able to sort of work out the distance um, that he could see them over the mountain range and the speed they were traveling. He estimated as something, I think, about 1,200 um, miles per hour, which was way in excess of any jet aircraft at that time um and he reported it he landed and um before he knew it it was being asked by newsmen and this again is of interest to me because there's the journalistic input into this the journalist who who um, talked to him said what did you see and he said well the only way i can describe it is if you got like a, um, a plate or a saucer and you skimmed it like that across a pond and it would just and that that's how he was trying to describe it, but and, and I know how journalists work. It was like they needed to come up with a, a phrase to describe it. So if 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 they'd have said, "Oh, um, flying crescents or batwing objects," <laughs> it wouldn't have had the same impact. But somewhat some sub editor somewhere came up with the phrase "flying saucer," 
and that just like almost like you know like somebody put it on twitter today or it had gone viral it was just around the world in 48 hours and people were seeing flying saucers all over the world you got reports from australia uk brazil people seeing saucer shaped objects now that to me is interesting because kenneth arnold all through his life insisted that they weren't saucer shaped and and it was his sighting then that triggered off the American Air Force interest because, of course, they thought, could these things be Russian aircraft of some kind? Maybe the Russians had captured some advanced German, you know, because Operation Paperclip, where they'd taken all these scientists back to um, um, the Soviet Union after the um, the end of the war and um, they'd captured the Pienemunde, um rocket development site in northern Germany. And there were a lot of sightings of weird rocket-shaped objects as well. So there was a lot of concern with the British, the Swedish, the um, the um, American Air Force that maybe some of these things that people were seeing, like Kenneth Arnold, were some kind of advanced rocket or prototype aircraft that the Russians had developed. Now, how they'd done that in the space of just a couple of years since the end of the war, no one could explain. But it was it was Kenneth Arnold's sighting that led the what was then I think the U.S. Army Air Force because the U.S. Air Force wasn't created I think until the end of 1947, and they they set up this thing called Project Sign, which later became Project Blue Book, and that was the first official sort of national investigation into these sightings. So that began the modern era. So you've got all these ancient reports that I've mentioned and stories and folklore, but the the real modern when the military really started taking um, taking this seriously it was 1947. And we, the British, sort of, were always sort of, something kicks off in America, it gets imported here eventually. And we started um, looking at this seriously about 1950. Does, does this come off the Winston Churchill memo that I know you yeah. mentioned in your book and it was a flying saucer working group? Yeah, you, yeah. Can you explain a, a bit about that? Yeah, well... Um, yeah, the Winston, the famous Winston Churchill memo um, was one of the first um, UFO documents that were actually released under the 30-year rule at the National Archives in Kew, and I think that must have been about 1986, something like that. Um, and there'd been pretty much nothing from the British side released up to that point. And then suddenly this Churchill document appeared that basically is it was a memo that he'd sent in July 1952 and the reason he sent it then was there was a huge, we use the word flap, which means sort of like a big outbreak of sightings over Washington, D.C. And the president, President Truman at the time, um, got involved because, you know, U.S. capital, things seen, seen on radar, and they'd scrambled American fighter jets to go and interview these things. It was all over the papers and in the Times. And Winston Churchill, who was then our prime minister, and he was in his final term as prime minister, um, 77 years old, he saw these stories and he said, what the hell is this? What, what? So he wrote to the air ministry, uh, head of the air ministry, and basically said, what's, this, what, what's all this stuff about flying saucers? You know, tell me the truth. I want to know what's going on. Because he had had um, a long sort of term interest in extraterrestrials and strange things seen in the sky because in the 30s when he was a journalist, he wrote an article which... Um, wasn't published until the middle of the Second World War, basically saying, is the life in outer space? Which is actually quite an accomplished piece of writing. So he was obviously interested in, in um, these phenomena. And also, back in the First World War, he'd actually launched an investigation about a, um, a strange airship that had been seen over Kent 
just before the outbreak of, this, of the First World War that, that the authorities thought was a German Zeppelin. And it turned out it wasn't. But people had seen something in the sky and because everybody was thinking, right, you know, the Germans are going to uh, launch air raids on the UK when the war breaks out. Um, they thought that this was an unidentified flying object. So he, ha he did have pass form on this. And he, the response he got from the air ministry was um, nothing to worry about, Prime Minister. Uh, we've done a full intelligence study of this subject. Um, and that basically reached the conclusion that all sightings reported could be explained as natural phenomenon, hoaxes, optical illusions, all these sorts of things. So the Americans have done a similar study, which was obviously the one launched in 1947, and they've reached pretty much the same conclusion. So it was like that was the end of it. Or it appeared to be because no one could find this study. So when Churchill's memo was released in 1980s and it referred to this intelligence study, obviously lots of people then tried to locate it and it had disappeared. Um, so when I got interested in this subject and freedom of information came along, I, I, what that was one of the first things I went for. So I thought, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go look and see if I can find this mysterious study that had been used to um, brief Winston Churchill. So that was one of the first applications I made, which must have been about 1999, 2000, for a copy of it. And initially, they said, no, we've had requests to see this before. Um, a lot of the Air Ministry records from that period were, were just destroyed because there was no room to keep them. Um, so we've got to assume it had been, um, it's been lost, but I, I, I just, I wouldn't let it go. And I just said, I can't believe you've lost it. Please go back and look. And they found it. So I could not believe one day my, my letterbox, <laughs> this brown envelope dropped through the letterbox. I opened it up and lo and behold, here is the study that had been used to brief Winston Churchill. So it was that. Well, there was various other things that I got my hands on as well, but that really sort of enthused me. And I thought, right, well, if I can get this, I can go for all the other stuff that they must have hidden away as well. And then, and then so moving on from, from the late 40s into the 50s, I suppose that's when flying saucers and UFOs really become a cultural phenomenon. They do, yeah. And the United States Air Force launches Project Blue Book, which yeah. is quite a public study of the UFO phenomenon, inviting the public to... Yeah. Um, uh, put in their, their experiences. Can you tell us a bit about Blue Book? Because I know it's one of the more famous. Yeah, well, Blue Book, as you say, was very sort of a, a public project. Everybody knew it was, it existed. And what they what they had was, um, I don't know how much funding they were getting from this, but it was a, a funded United States Air Force project. And the CIA at the time, because of all the worry about the Russians, were secretly sort of monitoring what the, what the Blue Book were doing. Um, and they produced, they got together some of the, the, the big name scientists of, of the period in 1953 and got them all together for, for I think it was three or four day secret symposium. Um, Louis Alvarez, um, Samuel Goldsmith, um, R.V. Jones from the UK, he was involved. And, and they looked at all the best evidence that the, the American Air Force had put together and basically said, uh, we don't think there's anything to worry about, but what we are in terms of like these being real sort of extraterrestrial visitors or Russians. But what they were worried about are the, are the sort of psychological impact of people the, in, the, in the USA sort of constantly looking for these things and panics and being triggered off by things being seen in the sky because we were at a really, um, a, a really sort of um, sensitive point in the Cold War, 1952-53. There could have been like the Third World War triggered at any moment 
So if, from the point of view of the US Air Force, um, if they see saw sort of objects coming in over the North Atlantic on radar, what are they? Are they Russian? Are they unidentified flying objects? So they were really sort of keen to sort of debunk the subject because they wanted to reduce the sort of level of public hysteria and public interest in it. So what they recommended, they even sort of suggested getting Disney involved in doing like a series of sort of propaganda films to sort of debunk flying saucers and to sort of stop people talking about them and say, it's complete nonsense, you know, don't waste your time on it. So they saw it as a military problem and that's how the the, the acronym UFO came along. And and it's interesting that the, the, the study that was used to brief Winston Churchill, it was actually done by a body probably the weirdest named body in the entire history of British um, of public services, the Flying Saucer Working Party. What a fantastic name that was. But the report that they produced wasn't about flying saucers. The title of it was Unidentified Flying Objects, which was a phrase that had been created by the Americans. Um, Ed Ruppel, who was the um, US Air Force captain who was in charge of Blue Book, he basically thought, we need to get away from flying saucer, the popular idea of flying saucer because flying saucers were in all these b movies you know like the day the earth stood still everyone when they thought flying saucers thought disc-shaped object from outer space piloted by aliens so they wanted a military term that got away from that extraterrestrial connection so ufo initially was just unidentified object in the sky so until it's identified as a russian missile or a friendly aircraft that's how they regarded it but unfortunately, as we now know, in 2019, UFO to the vast majority of people means exactly the same as flying saucer. So you see in the mid-1950s, flying, flying saucers sort of get edged out and UFOs start to become what people are talking about. And then, as was in most, the, the last, I suppose, comprehensive study done by the MOD was not UAP is now yep. something. Is that to get away from the yeah. UFO? That's yet another attempt by the military establishment, and this is not just in in England, but um, and the Americans. It turns out they they've um, funded uh, another UFO project secretly that only emerged. This is the um, Advanced Aerospace Technology. I, I, I can't remember the exact phrase that they used to describe it, but they're all now using UAP unidentified aerial phenomena rather than UFO because UFO signifies an object, i.e. a solid object. And I think all the various studies that have been done over the years suggest that most of these things aren't solid objects. They are meteorological things, they are weather-related, they're electromagnetic, so they're not objects, they're, they're phenomena of some kind. So the military have tended to go with this UAP thing, which I think is pronounced WAP, well, okay, <laughs> of course. It's not got quite the same... They love an acronym, though, don't they? Yeah, so. they do, they do. So, so, they, so, yeah, I think the terminology thing is really significant. And again, all these things, it's back to this thing about true and false. Does it matter whether it's true or false? People are seeing things that they can't explain. And, and in a period when there's a lot of sort of social and um, international tension, that is obviously something that's going to be of concern to uh, the military and, and to governments. And to me, looking at this as a folklorist, I don't. I think I think the whole um, question, the whole sort of obsession that the media have: Do you believe in it, and is it true or is it false? I don't think you can you can say that on about the subject. The bottom line is, people see things in the sky that they can't explain. They always have done, right back to biblical times, um, and in the modern era, 
governments and the military have had to take had to take these things seriously simply because some of these things could have turned out to be foreign aircraft and one of the outcomes of that report the more recent one uh, that you mentioned is that the british um, defense intelligence staff who, who um, were monitoring this subject for many years one of the conclusions they reached in 2000 was that some of the things that they'd actually had reported to them were black project aircraft friendly black project aircraft i.e American, um, maybe the B-2 bomber, the stealth, um, various of the Blackbird, etc., etc., that the Americans had probably been flying around in our airspace and not telling us about. Yeah. The U-2, the perfect example in the Cold War. Um, if, you, if you look at the history of the U-2, when the Americans first started flying it um, to spy on Russia and Russian um, nuclear um, developments, not only did they not tell the Russians about it, they didn't tell us either. And there's there's plenty of evidence that they, that they actually triggered off some of the air defence um, alerts um, in the UK, Denmark, various other countries that they were flying over, allied countries. But the object, the, the the U2 project was so top secret they they didn't even tell us that they were flying these things. So some of the some of the UFO reports, some of the early ones from the 50s um, that involve radar, I'm quite convinced that they were, you know, American aircraft some of them or maybe russian who knows but this is why the military got involved so in in the 40s and 50s people start seeing things well people have always seen some things in the sky mm. but they, they identify them as flying saucers it yeah. becomes a big media cultural phenomenon and then you've got all the pop culture stuff going yeah. on as well in the background you know quay to mass the day the earth stood still all those all those science fiction becoming science fiction a thing, lost in space etc yeah. and then in in the early 60s uh, the the, the Folklore, the, the cultural phenomenon takes a, a bit of a term. You have the Betty and Barney Hill case, right? yeah. which is which establishes the principle of, of alien abduction and all the hallmarks of it. Yeah, yeah. Driving along on the, the a, a long, lonely road, a bright light, a, a missing period of time, then perhaps dreams or under hypnosis. Yeah, yeah. Things. Yeah. Um, how do you think that plays into all this? Because that has a massive impact on how we think about UFOs. Because now when we think about UFOs, we think about... Aliens, alien abductions. Yeah. Later on, we start to have the the grey alien rather than the the little green men from Mars. Yeah. I mean, what do you think about that as a phenomenon, as well, a folklorist? You see, if you were looking at it from the point of view of someone who believes in UFOs, and what what the other thing we've not mentioned is that what began to emerge in the nineteen fifties is you've got a pressure that these groups of people who call themselves UFOlogists. Who, who sort of believe that we are being visited by aliens and the government knows about it and are involved in a massive cover-up of the truth. So um, you've got this, like, a pressure group as well that's that's been quite influential in terms of, like, writing to senators and MPs to sort of press forward their view of this and all the books and literature, etc. Um, so they would interpret all the alien abductions and that as, well, the aliens are here. And so, obviously, they're interested in, in finding out about us. And the way they do that is by kidnapping people and examining them and all the rest of it. Now, that's one way of looking at it. Looking at it as a folklorist, you get a completely different perspective. Because if you think about it, um, how did it all start? With people seeing odd things in the sky, sometimes far away, sometimes close by. But there's only so long that you can keep that sort of thing going in terms of newspaper reports books about people seeing odd things in the sky it's not interesting enough the novelty wears off so at some point if you want to believe that these things really are craft from other worlds piloted by intelligent extraterrestrials 
you want it to go a bit further than people just seeing them in the sky. So the, the next obvious thing is, well, when are they going to land? When are we going to see who's piloting them? That sort of thing. So by about 1952, you start getting people such as George Adamski, a famous um, Polish-American contactee, who um, <clears throat> he used to run a hamburger stand on the, on the Mount Palomar near the big telescope in California. And he was into all this sort of hippie mysticism way before the 60s. And he was sort of um, a spiritualist. He was talking to spirits and <clears throat> he'd moved away from the spirits of the dead and he was talking to extraterrestrials by spiritualism. So flying saucers came along and he and various other people from that same era <clears throat> thought, this would, this will be a good subject that we can sort of develop further. And so he claimed that a flying saucer had actually landed in the Mojave Desert and he'd met the pilot from this flying saucer and he wrote this best-selling book with Desmond Leslie, who was um, uh, an Irish um, author who was interested in flying saucers. And it, it told the story of how he'd met this, this being from Venus called Orthon, who'd come down in this flying saucer scout ship and the mothership was a huge cigar-shaped thing that kept in Earth orbit. But at that time, we hadn't been to Venus and Mars, and many people still thought there was a good possibility there could be intelligent life there. So he was able to sort of tell this story, and thousands of people around the world believed it. It became a bestseller, much to the annoyance of people like Arthur C. Clarke. So that moved the legend, or the myth, as I like to call it, along. Because there's only so long you can, as I say, that you can talk about odd lights and shapes in the sky. People want something more. So you've got the contactees, you know, these people who claim that they'd been on trips around the cosmos with friendly Venusians and Saturnians during the 1950s. And, and does this play into the counterculture as well that yeah, emerges in the, the particular the 1960s? Yeah. Um, like how how are the how is the counterculture and, and ufology related? Yeah, well, it, it sort of provided a, an audience. Um, certainly, the nineteen sixties and all the sort of new ideas and things about ancient astronauts and about contact with higher intelligences and the fact that people were worried about atomic destruction. It was a quite a natural thing for a lot of people to to um, to sort of move into that they felt completely frustrated by, as they do today. By the stalemate, you know, you got Soviet Union and the uh, United States, and the, the the I mean, I remember it from the nineteen eighties. That fear that at any stage a third world war could kick off and they could all destroy each other. Well, we're in Sheffield, the yeah. uh, the home of threads. Absolutely, yeah, so. yeah, and and so the idea that there was um, other more advanced civilizations in outer space who'd actually gone through all these things and who were more advanced than us and who were concerned. Why on earth they would be concerned about us? But that was a I theme that, that, that always emerges from, particularly in the sixties and seventies. These abduction stories is yeah. that there tends to be a, a benign or benevolent race mm. who who want to stop us from blowing ourselves into yeah. oblivion. And there's almost a semi-religious aspect there is. to that. Yeah, but you see, you got you got the contact T thing, which was the the benign aspect to it you know where they wanted to stop they wanted to sort of educate us and bring us into the international community and they were the and that the appearance of these uh these um aliens that were met that people met in the 1950s were completely different to the the gray creatures with big black eyes who probe people and put them on you know give them medical examinations and rape them and all kinds mm -hmm. of stuff that you got from the 60s onwards yeah so you know People who believe in aliens would probably explain that by saying, oh, well, we've been visited by lots of different types of aliens. 
and we got a particular type that came in the 50s mm. and they were replaced by a, a, a nastier breed in the 1960s you know so that's the way that they come to terms with this but i, I want to come back to Back to I want to come back to that later. The, the kind of oh, as as a folklorist, yeah, the, yeah. the 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 geographical and cultural differentiation yeah. between what an alien looks yeah. like, or um, but looking at it from a folklorist, if you get a myth, myths that are popular and that that always spawn sub myths. So the alien abduction thing is is to me a sub myth of the larger myth. Mm-hmm. This is the UFO one, as is the cover up, the government cover up thing, yeah. and you have got other things like the Men in Black crop circles yeah. it's, it starts branching out into all these other sort of related areas and i suppose suppose by the the, the mid late 70s 80s and 90s mm. it's an established myth it's really part of our Massive. culture yeah. it's particularly part of our popular culture yeah. um and what we think of as as an alien or a ufo is really yep. established through film and and tv what is the state of the ufo myth or folklore now across the world would you say well at one time i mean um i'd say 20 or 30 years ago when i first got involved in it you could actually get your head around it because you know there was a there was a there was a sort of a um a group of people who who sort of investigated it in a sort of scientific um way you know the 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 serious ufologists and then there was there's always been like the the spiritual side i mean for example the Aetherius society in the uk which was like a contactee movement that began in the 1950s who sort of like um, regarded plane sources and their occupants in as sort of like saviors in a semi-religious way. So you always got like the lunatic fringe and the the, the ones who tried to approach it scientifically. But even even the ones who tried to approach it scientifically, you only have to sort of bury beneath the surface and you find all kinds of wacky ideas going on there. Um, so you could get your head around it a bit then, but then the internet came along, and of course now it's just it's become merged with all these other tropes that are going on. You know, like 9-11 conspiracies and, you know, ancient astronauts. It's it's impossible to get, get, get an idea of the whole thing because it's become so huge. But what I always find interesting is where you get someone who sees something now and um, you get the proponents who are saying, oh, right, you know, this person had no interest in the subject before. I've never read anything about UFOs. I just, I, I, I always laugh when I hear this. I just think there is not a single person on the face of this planet, and I'm talking about people who, who maybe maybe um, people who live on remote islands who've had no contact whatsoever with Western society might not recognise a UFO or an alien. But even they would have their own uh, cosmos of, of spirits and, and, and ghosts and things that effectively function in the same way that UFOs and aliens do for us. So this idea that people can have no interest or exposure to the subject, I just think is uh, is laughable. We, we're all part of the myth. Yeah. And in terms of the, the current state now, is the the, the WAP phenomenon, the <laughs> UFO phenomenon, still of interest to defence establishments? I think it's got to be, yeah. yeah. Um, and they, they, I mean, like the British have said, we're not interested in the subject anymore. We don't pay any attention to it. And they've, they've, they've effectively shut down all that reporting network that they built up from the 50s and 60s, where they had this thing where if you saw something odd in the sky and you rang the police, the police had a little form that they'd fill in. Um, so did local RAF bases, um, airports, and all that stuff was channeled into this little department in the Ministry of Defence, which pretty much generated all these files. And they've, they've effectively said, that's the end of it. We don't want any more reports from, from people, even from credible witnesses like pilots. But 
That's an interesting one in terms of cre- yeah. credi- credible witnesses. Because um, yeah. you, you write a bit in your, your, your book about, say, the Arnold mm. case. Or, is there a case to be made that we, we should, if somebody makes a quite a bold or extraordinary claim, that, that because they are um, a pilot or in the military, yeah. that, that we should take that more seriously than other sightings? <laughs> well, the, again, the UFO propo- proponents and believers, will they make this huge thing about credible witnesses that because someone has served in the military or they've been a pilot, that somehow that makes them un- that, you ca- that what they say they've seen can't be questioned because, you know, they're, they're Lieutenant Colonel so-and-so. So they're really impressed by all these titles, particularly the Americans. You know, there's this whole thing, this disclosure movement in America that's got this big long list of all these people, you know, Air Force colonels and this, that and the other. And it's like, I'm not impressed because because it's like they are human beings. And some of these people have got the most, despite being um, um, even the chief of defense staff, for instance, Lord Mountbatten believed in, mm. in flying saucers and aliens and, and the, um, Lord Dowding. Um, chief of the air staff during the Second World War, who, who, who pretty much is, um, you know, his, his influence helped us to win the Battle of Britain, but it didn't stop him from believing in fairies, and and in spirits um, of of dead pilots coming back. You know, because it's Lord Dowding, do we? Because he's Lord Dowding, does that mean to say we have to believe in what he says? I mean, the most recent example of this is uh, Lieutenant Colonel Charles Holt, who is the the, the key American um, witness to the Rendlesham Forest incident in Suffolk. I was doing an interview with Linda Moulton Howe, um, who is another one of these people who, who thinks that because someone has got a military rank, therefore what they say you've got to you've got to believe it. And she was saying, well, um, Lieutenant Colonel Holt has, has said that the, the lights that he'd seen in Rendlesham Forest are aliens, therefore they must be aliens. And I thought, well, because he says that, where's his evidence? <laughs> if, if he said, you know, it's the Jolly Green Giant, would we have to believe that? Because he's got some military rank. And, 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 and why is that something that's specific to UFOs? Because we know from real life and unfortunate events in history, such as, for example, um, the quest for non-existent weapons of mass destruction in Iraq. There were lots of um, um, high-ranking military people, including um, Colin Powell, for instance, who appeared at the United Nations and, and said, oh, yes, we've got the proof that um, weapons of mass destruction existed. One of the highest-ranking military officers in the, U- in the US at the time. He wasn't right, though, was he? And it does make you wonder whether the the, the intelligence establishment or the deep state are capable of, of covering something <laughs> well, like that, particularly in um, well, think about current that situation right now with our own government. <laughs> think about that for a moment. The, the, these conspiracy theorists allege that, um, that the fact that we've been visited by aliens and that they've crashed at Roswell and all the rest of it, that the governments of the world have all conspired without exception, to hide that from the population since 1947. These are the governments of the world who can't agree on anything, not a single thing, but they have all managed to consistently agree to conceal the presence of aliens from us. And I'm sorry, I just don't buy it, because you're talking about tens of thousands of people who must have been in on that, and not a single piece of evidence has emerged to, to suggest it's true. Not one leak, which not seems suspicious. Thing. I mean, even all these papers that have been released, you know, the Snowden files, the WikiLeaks thing, there's not a single piece of evidence in any of those that, that, that they're trying to conceal. 
plausible Still. deniability. I've seen Independence Day. <laughs> um, let's move on to your work at the National Archives. Yeah, okay. And you mentioned the Rendlesham Forest case, and yeah. I think we should talk about it through the prism of this. Yeah, yeah. Because okay. you've done a lot of work on this, haven't you? Particularly through, through the National mm. Archives. So where did it begin? What is the Rendlesham Forest case for our listeners? Um, <laughs> how did you become interested in it? And how did you then pursue it and work with the National Archives to bring it to public light? Okay, well, how I became interested in it was probably the same as many other people in that it was on the front page of the News of the World in 1983, which is when the story first emerged. Um, UFO lands in Suffolk, that's official. <laughs> and, and the story came from a memo that Lieutenant Colonel Holt, who was the deputy base commander of RAF um, Woodbridge at the time, had written three years earlier, shortly after the incident. So the, the thing happened over a series of nights, end of December 1980, again, right at the height of the Cold War, the Russians had just uh, gone into Afghanistan, there was lots of tension in Poland, and the Americans um, had this huge uh, base complex, uh, RAF Woodbridge and RAF Bentwaters in Suffolk, in the middle of this deep sort of forest, where they had A-10 tank buster aircrafts ready, ready to sort of deploy to Europe, and it's been alleged that they had nuclear weapons there as well. So, strange lights have been seen, Airmen had gone out, report, um, seen these things. The police had been called and groups of senior officers had gone out and seen something themselves, including Colonel Holt. He'd summarised all this in a document that he'd written for the British base commander that had been sent to the UFO desk at Whitehall, who'd not done much with it. But no one knew this You've at the time. Job, and the story only emerged. There were various rumours that got out. And the story emerged by Colonel Holt's memo being released under the American Freedom of Information Act. So people here had tried to get hold of some documentation about what had happened and been told, sorry, we don't have anything. So bizarrely at the time, the Americans had a Freedom of Information Act, but we didn't. So someone in America applied for a copy of Colonel Holt's memo. They went to the British government, who supplied them with a copy of it, and it was released in America. And that, to me, at the time, I just thought, this is ludicrous. Why don't we have... A freedom of information act request so anyway that what that's what broke the story and um it basically was about lights seen in the middle of the night in a forest unexplained lights so at the time it wasn't such a big deal but there were various people coming forward and saying there's a lot more to it than that you know this this thing had actually landed on one of the nights and that um, um the base commander had communicated with aliens that had emerged from it and you know, so it was it was a Roswell incident on British soil, you know, with American witnesses, credible witnesses, you know, military officers who wouldn't lie and couldn't possibly be mistaken. So this from 1983, when the news of the world first broke the story, I, along with many other people who were interested in UFOs at the time, just thought, what a fantastic tale. But you couldn't get any further because we had no Freedom of Information Act. And these American witnesses um, all after that you know, years later, because they were posted to different parts of the world, they couldn't be tracked down. And all you kept hearing was more and more rumours about what went on. So at the time in the mid-1990s, around the 50th anniversary of the subject, when I was working as a journalist, I just thought, well, why has no one asked the Ministry of Defence? Now we've got this new legislation for their file. They must have a file on it. So as well as getting the Flying Saucer Working Party study, the Churchill thing, I just thought that was my second key thing that I wanted to see. So I, I, I wrote to them and said, have you got a file on Rendlesham? In fact, no, what I did was I said, send me a list of all your files on this subject um, under this new pre-FOI thing. So 
I got like a huge batch of papers with just endless hundreds and hundreds and hundreds listings of files and when they were due to be released. And in there was Rendlesham Forest. So I said, send me a copy of it. And it was, mm, uh, um, well, there's some confidential stuff in there. We may have to withhold stuff. And I said, well, yeah, but under the legislation, you can't withhold the whole file. You know, redact it, take stuff out that's sensitive. Let me have a copy of it. And lo and behold, I think it was about five or six months later, big thick blown envelope slapped on the floor, passed through my letterbox and opened it up. Here it is, the, the fabled Rendlesham Forest file, which when I looked at it, pretty much began with Colonel Holt's memo sent to the MOD in 1980 with a covering note from the British base commander just basically saying, is this of any interest? <laughs> because Who was that was sent to whom? The it was UFO sent to desk. the UFO desk, yeah. And so in the end, I actually tracked down the British base commander um, who lived in Wales, who retired, and I actually found the UFO desk officer, Simon Whedon, uh, who'd, who'd become a vicar. Mm. By the late 1990s, <laughs> <laughs> impact on it. after being like a civil servant when he was younger. And so I actually found that what happened was the British base commander came back to um, Rendlesham Forest, um, came to back to RAF Woodbridge. This is two weeks after the events. And this American guy, this Charles Holt, basically said, oh, sit down, Don. Don Morland is British. Um, uh, the the aliens landed over Christmas. But I didn't want to get you off your Christmas holidays. So, so, you know, I just thought this is, this can't be right. There's something <laughs> wrong here. <laughs> if he really thought there was some real serious threat to this airbase complex, this is a NATO base with nuclear weapons. He wouldn't have waited two weeks for the British base commander to come back to tell him about it. And yet, that's what happened. And that, to me, pretty much summed up how seriously they took it. So when I when I spoke to the desk officer Simon Whedon who'd actually received um, this two weeks later, all he did was just copy it to the various RAF stations and say, well, the Americans, and it seemed to be, you know, those excitable Americans <laughs> say that they saw these weird lights over Christmas. Did you see anything on air defence radar? Because at the end of the day, if we were going to be attacked by Russians or aliens or something, we've, we've got all these fantastic radars that are looking out over the North Sea. They wouldn't just suddenly drop from above They'd be seen approaching, and all you get in the file is just no. Well, we, one of the um, radar stations said, "Yeah, the Americans called us up in a really excited state one night, saying, could we see these things that they were seeing in the forest?'" And the commander, who I actually tracked down again, interviewed him. He said, "Yeah, they rang up two or three times saying they were in the forest, seeing these lights. Could we see anything on air defence radar?" And I looked at the radar picture. There's nothing. <laughs> And that's it. So what? As so far what, as they were concerned, what, that was the end of it. What was it? In my mind, I, the I think I was six or seven, and mm. and I watched a episode of Strange but True. Yeah, and yeah it, it was had on the Rendlesham yeah. case on it, and that's what yeah. piqued my interest. Yeah, yeah, so in yeah. my mind, it was essentially a disco ball in the forest. But what actually was it? Do you have any idea? Well, um, the first proper investigation that was done by done into it at the time shortly after the news of the world story was by a chap who i know quite well an astronomer called ian ridpath who at the time did various films for the bbc and he actually took a camera crew into the forest and he found this chap called uh, vince thurkettle because the forest right that, that sort of surrounded these bases was actually um used by the forestry commission um for you know, obviously it was one of their main sources of um, of um, of trees at the time for that area 
And he actually lived in the wood. And Ian spoke to this Vince guy and said, you know, you, you must have heard the rumours about this UFO landing. And he said, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And what do you think it is? The lighthouse. Oh, and he pointed in the distance and there's the Orford Ness lighthouse that's flashing like this in the distance. And it was like, yeah, but surely they must have known what the, it was the lighthouse. And there's a classic film, if you go online, I think it's on Ian's website, where he's standing there and Vince has been interviewed. And you can see this light going like that in the distance. And, of course, the Americans, the servicemen who'd gone out there, all said, oh, no, it wasn't the lighthouse. We, we're, not, we're not stupid. We know what a lighthouse looks like. But you, you have to sort of think, well, yeah, but this is in the middle of the night, pitch black. And a lot of them had never, some of these people who'd been out there were 18 and 19-year-olds. From from America who'd never been to Europe before, they suddenly find themselves in a in a an airbase. Christmas, nothing happening, freezing cold. They're all out in the woods drinking, maybe you know doing other stuff. Who knows? Close Encounters of the Third Kind special edition was showing at Ipswich over that Christmas period, and also there was a lot of other stuff going on. There was a Russian satellite that burnt up, uh, well, a satellite booster rocket that re-entered on Christmas Day in the evening, seen by thousands of people across southern England. So you've got all these factors together. So Ian's theory was that um, what had happened was that um, something had been seen apparently falling into the forest by the security guards, which was the bowline, like a bright meteor mm. or perhaps this um, satellite. They'd gone into the forest to investigate, and whilst they were in there, they saw this flashing light, which is the lighthouse, but they didn't know it was the lighthouse. And when the statements of these guys emerge years later, they do actually say that we saw this flashing light, we followed it for three hours, and then we realised it was a beacon, i.e. a lighthouse. So despite denying it later, their actual written statements that they gave to Colonel Hall actually identified the lighthouse, but they didn't know what it was. Well, by this point, it almost doesn't matter, does it? Because it's the, it's it's taken the, a life of its own. the initial yeah. headline in the news of the world, and, and another R, which we, we can discuss, which is Roswell, Roswell yeah. which, you know, comes from that, that headline, yeah, yeah. USAAF yeah. finds flying saucer or catches flying saucer. I've, I've read a lot about Roswell before coming onto this, mm. and I'm, I must say, what a complicated, oh, is, convoluted yeah. case that is. Some stories, this is going back to journalistic procedure, some stories are just too good to kill. Why, but it what? wasn't really, it just disappeared, didn't it, yeah. for 20, 30 it did, years? Yeah. It did, yeah. I mean, the Roswell incident followed the Kenneth Arnold sighting that we talked about earlier by about a week. And then you had the, the Lubbock Lights as well. Yeah, was that was, that, yeah, I think that was about 1951. But yeah. in terms of like the media coverage, there was this like huge build-up of interest in what are these flying saucers you know, that Kenneth Arnold has seen. And if you, if you look back to the, the newspapers, how they covered it in, the 19, in 1947, there's this huge interest, people seeing flying saucers all over the world. And then there's this report, flying saucer crashed on a ranch in New Mexico. You know, and and what what had happened was this this rancher in this remote area of New Mexico had found all this weird wreckage in the desert, and he collected some of it up, put it in his truck, took it into town, showed it to the sheriff, and coincidentally, um, Roswell Air Force Base at the time was one was the only um, um, Air Force Base anywhere in the world that had nuclear weapons. Yeah. So a lot of people have made a huge deal out of that. Why did this thing crash? near the, um, were, they were the aliens interested in our nuclear weapons, you know, shortly after, you know, bombs had been dropped on Japan. So th you can see how the myth... It was the same air wing as well, wasn't it? It was, yeah. been over in the Pacific. Yeah, and, and the press officer at the base, because he'd obviously, everyone at the time were reading about flying saucers, you can't get away from that background. 
So people have said, why did they put out this press release to say they'd captured a flying saucer if it was just a weather balloon? But the reason he did that was because, like everybody else, they'd been reading about flying saucers after Kenneth Arnold's sighting. So it was like, is this the resolution of it? Has this thing that's been found in the desert explained what Kenneth Arnold was, was um, had actually seen? So what happened was they put all this, they sent it all off to um, another airbase. I can't remember which one, somewhere in Texas, I think. And the um, the general, Roger Ramey, at the time, there was a press conference called and they got a meteorological um, officer there who basically said, this is a weather balloon. It's an unusual weather balloon, but it's a weather balloon. And that was it. Hmm. it the story just died. It was, well, it wasn't a blind saucer after all. But then what happened 30 years later... Well, that's because that story is a very simple story that you <laughs> just told there. Yeah. But if you go and read, yeah. I, I invite all listeners oh, to no, go and read no. about Roswell on Wikipedia. They were... Four different crash oh, sites. There were twelve different. There was movements of military yeah. in here and here. There was Hangar Eighteen. There and now was... Roswell, the city itself, has, has turned this into a huge international visitors' attraction with a them. museum, tours of the different crash the, sites. The Little Alien, which is one yeah. of the best named pubs in the world. And unfortunately, the whole thing seems to be again as a result of Cold War secrecy. In that the thing that was found in the desert. The most likely explanation for it was it was a part it wasn't an ordinary weather, weather balloon. It was part of the top secret project the Americans were working on. This is like a a pre U two mm. project in that they wanted to know what the what the Russians were doing in terms of setting off nuclear weapons, and they had no way of overflying Russian territory at that time because they didn't have um, an aircraft such as the U two that could fly above their radar. Um, coverage. So what they thought they'd do is they'll send up these massive balloons into the upper atmosphere uh, with cameras attached and that they would sort of follow the jet stream over Russia. They'd take pictures of uh, Russian nuclear facilities and then the cameras would be dropped into the sea and recovered by um, American aircraft. And so it turns out that they were launching these huge um, balloon trails from the desert areas of the of the um, of the Americas. Later, they moved it to Scotland and Western Europe in the later fifties. But nineteen forty seven, the protos- prototype versions of these huge Moby Dick balloons, as they were known, um, were being um, liberated. And it was all top secret. So that's where the secrecy comes from. And one of them we know disappeared um, shortly after launch. I think about three or four weeks before the Roswell wreckage was found. And the descriptions of it by the rancher don't sound like something from an advanced technology. They are bits of sort of um, foil that was, were unusual, that had like weird hieroglyphics on them and things like that, which are completely consistent with, um, you know, what you'd expect from some kind of um, test balloon of the of the kind that we're talking about. Are there any other cases that really pique your interest that, that say something about or culture or society or because what's really interesting about that is that was a that was an interesting five minute um conversation yeah. where we got to the heart of the matter we did um yeah. and i remember that the, the phoenix lights one because I, I remember being like maybe nine ten when that happened and it was all over the news and that was just some flares right um but it, it what interests me what intrigues me and must intrigue you as a folklorist is that really doesn't matter and you've said it before it doesn't matter no um so if you're a, you're a scientist or a skeptic you can provide all the evidence until you're blue in the face, yeah. but it's not going to matter to people. No. Why is that? It's something called cognitive dissonance. And that is um, when people sort of um, decide that something is the case, and then you can apply this to lots of other things like Brexit and you know 
other other sort of things that preoccupy us in the modern age. Um, when you present someone with evidence that they're wrong, um, now some people might might look at that evidence, perhaps if they're from a scientific background or something, and say, "Oh right, yeah, mm, yes, I can see now. I've made a mistake, you know, and I can see now you've laid out the evidence for this that." You know, I'm going to accept that something I thought could be explained in a certain way, I was mistaken. But what you actually sit, tend to find, because we are all human beings and we 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 sort of um, we behave not necessarily in a logical way in our lives. We we behave, we believe things because we feel they are right, emotionally right. You know, it's something going on. You know that we feel this must be the right explanation for it. So what you find is is that. People believe in UFOs in almost in a semi-religious way, and no matter how much evidence you present them, like Roswell is a perfect example. You know, the, the, there are the few certain facts, and then there are the, the the sort of the myths and legends that people believe, and this applies to Rendlesham and a lot of these other incidents. And no matter how much evidence you present them to to suggest that something that they believed in as being extraordinary wasn't, it was ordinary. They won't have it, and not only will they not have it, they actually um, they actually become even more entrenched in their belief, and they, then they start saying, "Why are you trying to tell me that this is not not true? Are you being are you in the pay of the security services? Are they so worried about the truth coming out that you're trying to?" Has anyone it? said that to you? Has oh, anyone constantly. said that you're a government? Show? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, all the time. Yeah, I'm working for MI6, and when that doesn't work, it's like if only I'd imagine they pay yeah. quite well. Don't they? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> do you see what I mean yeah so I, I've just abandoned all that now and I just don't get involved in yeah. those kinds of arguments anymore I just look at it at the whole thing the believers and the skeptics because the skeptics mm. are as much a part of the phenomenon as the believers and yeah. I, I just find the whole thing a, a fascinating human phenomenon so as a, as a human phenomenon obviously you, mankind humankind is is very diverse and blah 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 what is the UFO phenomenon and the alien phenomenon how does it express itself differently in different parts of the globe um well you've got i think now that you were saying we were saying about the internet um there is this sort of general idea everyone knows what an alien looks like and there's been experiments mm. done where, where they've given um, groups of people children and stuff like a, a, a piece of paper and a pen and said draw me an alien and people will draw the alien as, you know, the big sort of the grey alien with the dark eyes, etc., etc. And that has got to come from pop culture. Mm. Whereas if we went back, um, say, 50 years and said draw as an alien, you'd probably get a whole range of, of different types of aliens that p- perhaps people had seen, you know, from, mm. you know, the um, the classic little green men, the giants, the you had Robbie the, the robot. Yeah. You, you had the, the kind of uh, uh, the Scandinavian type, yeah. wasn't it? The, the tall, blonde... Had uh, blue eyed. That was yeah. very common before the grey aliens. Absolutely, and and what does what does this what does that sort of um, feed back into belief in angels? Because yeah. the the description of the alien orphan that was met by George Adamski, you know, with the long blonde hair and coming coming here to save us and to warn us against our way. It, it's it's straight from mm. traditional religion. It's what you'd expect an angel to appear, other than the wings, of course. But the wings have been replaced by the flying saucer. Yeah, it's just I'm just looking at a list of alleged <laughs> alien beings right yeah. now on on Wikipedia. So rep, reptilians, and, and this Nordic feeds aliens. back into folklore because in all cultures, all all no matter where people have lived anywhere in the world, mm. they've all got stories about trolls and ghosts and demons and angels and and really, I just think the modern UFO phenomenon is like a technological 
development from those folkloric beliefs in supernatural beings. So this is interesting because we live in a secular society. Mm. We live in a society where, in many ways, we can explain more than we've ever been able to explain. Do we live in a secular society, though? Well, there, there you are. <laughs> I mean, would you like to take on that question? Because yeah. is the UFO phenomenon, and the fact that so many people believe, and you mentioned the polls before, it is, yeah. I know plenty of people who, who believe in UFOs and that aliens have, have mm. visited earth whether it was in prehistoric times or, or whether it's now is there something about human beings that there is an intrinsic need or desire to believe in something not necessarily more than ourselves but something mysterious well the straight answer is yes and if you yeah. look at it from the perspective of, of sociology um max weber um published a paper i think back in the second world war all about the disenchantment of society and it, and this thing about we are secular. We we can explain all these things, and so why are why do so many people believe in aliens when it's com- palpably nonsense? Which was the effectively what the air ministry was saying to Winston Churchill. Don't worry about it, Prime Minister. It's all nonsense. But it, it didn't make it go away. Mm-hmm. And and the fact is, is what I what I think is, although we claim that we live in this sort of technological society where we can explain things and anything we don't understand, we will understand in the fullness. This is this is like, you know, the Richard Dawkins view. Um, I just think you, it's when you start to disenchant um, society and you take away all those beliefs and all the sort of like religion, traditional religion go uh, dies and people don't believe in all the stuff they used to believe in because we are still human beings with the same brains as human beings tens of thousands of years ago. If you take away those beliefs, then people will just produce new ones. Mm. And that's where you get all the um, the UFOs, the aliens, the ghosts, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, that scientists are always railing about as being, you know, why why are people obsessed with this nonsense, you know, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But even scientists themselves who try and make it out that they don't believe in it, why then are, is so much time and energy being invested in the search for extraterrestrial intelligence? Every day there's some new telescope that's launched to look for evidence of aliens in distant star systems. So maybe these so-called secular scientists, they believe in something as well, and they're putting all this time and effort into that. So no one can escape this sort of hardwired wanting to believe in something. And the bottom line is we don't want to think that we're alone in the universe, and we will find any which way to sort of find evidence that we aren't alone. So for, for people who believe in UFOs, they don't need all these telescopes and exoplanets because the aliens are already here and abducting us. Yeah. And, and so for the scientists who don't believe that, they're searching for evidence of it using radio telescopes. So it's all part of a whole, in a sense. Yeah, I think so. So what, um, I think we've, we've covered quite a lot there. I mean, <laughs> are there any final thoughts, anything that we haven't covered that you would like um, to discuss? Just the, um, the you, we're, we're, I think you referred earlier on to, um, you know, how do um, academic colleagues sort of mm. regard this sort of stuff? I think they, they, they're, they're quite wary of it. And, what what tend, what I tend to get is a lot of people informally will say, "Oh, I'm really into this stuff, and I, I think mm-hmm. the research that you do is fantastic." And I wish I I wish I'm I'm doing something really boring, you know, computing or something, and I wish I could study UFOs and get paid for it, etc. So, but I don't see it in that way, you know. What why should it not be a respectable academic subject to study? And that's one of the reasons why uh, here at Sheffield Allen we set up this um, Centre for Contemporary Legend because contemporary legend. Um, most people think of urban legend, but contemporary legend covers modern beliefs in a range of sort of odd and weird, unexplainable things. Not from the point of view of trying to prove whether they're true or false, but simply to, to look at it as a human phenomenon. So 
uh, a group of us have got together and created this research group and we're we're basing this on uh, the old center for english cultural tradition that used to exist at the other university the university of sheffield founded in 1964 and it, it was fantastic it had a teaching program it had phd research it's where i did my phd unfortunately at university of sheffield in their wisdom decided it didn't fit the corporate sort of image that they wanted at the time and closed this down so we want to revive it and sort of give some respectability back to the study of folklore and urban legends and the folklore society which is the the learned sort of um, society in this country founded in the 19th century for the promotion of folklore um, they're backing us. Um, the University of Hartford, they've launched a Master's in Folklore Studies uh, this year, 2019. Um, uh, so I think there is a there is a quite a, a revival in academic interest in these subjects, and I think it's, it's long overdue because and there's so much research that could be done. Are you working anything on anything of, 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 of interest outside of that? Um... Yeah, I mean, what I'd like to do, and I'm working with a... Um, a, a, um, a scholar in um, California, Professor Chris Bader, and he's done, um, he's done um, uh, opinion surveys, quite uh, well-funded ones in, in the USA, where he's been sort of asking people a range of sort of questions using opinion pollsters. What do you believe in? Why do you believe it? What other things do you believe in? And no one has done that properly in the UK mm. and Europe, and I think there's, there's, there's a lot of scope there to actually, you know, to, to find out what are the current beliefs in this subject and who believes in, the, in them why do they believe in them and what how are those beliefs interlinked to other um um areas of interest such as you know socioeconomic status um background uh, susceptibility to sort of conspiracy theories that kind of thing so i think there's a whole load of work that could be done but before you can do the qualitative side um, you need you need to find out you know how widespread are these beliefs and who holds them and, and no one has ever done that. There's been various polls done over the years by Ipso and Mori and what have you, but they never asked the same questions. So yeah. you can't really use those polls as evidence of anything other than a lot of people believe a lot of weird. Well, that's yeah. that's one of the reasons uh, we I, I thought it'd be interesting to do this podcast. The first reason we do, we do this podcast is because I'm incredibly interested in it, and that's why we do all these podcast episodes. <laughs> but the other reason is be- because one of the um, aims of this podcast is to get people who uh, you know are interested in mm. history or academic subjects, but not necessarily have an academic background, um, to kind of delve into it more. And it's definitely a, a subject, whether it's folklore, whether yeah. it's UFOs, whether it's ghosts. Um, that interests a lot of people and, and there's no reason why that shouldn't be a, a serious academic subject. Absolutely. I mean, they're not all the work that I did with the National Archives, I mean, they, they pretty much um, um, put out all the remaining Ministry of Defence papers on this subject. And there's a vast collection there. You're talking hundreds of thousands of pieces of paper, which, which whatever you think about UFOs, are social history mm. and those, those those records that are kept by the ministry of defense which include newspaper cuttings briefings for mps also citing reports sent in by people for a 60-year period i mean i think in hundreds of years time people will be looking back upon that as a resource and i'm really proud that i was involved in sort of like um curating it and preserving it because some of it was going to be destroyed mm. it was earmarked for destruction and a lot of the earlier records from the 50s were destroyed so I just think that would have been a huge shame just because some people don't think these things are real. It doesn't matter. It's social history. And, you know, like we look back now at the witchcraft trials, you know, we sit here in the 20th century and we think, oh, 
back in the 17th century, you know, people believed some odd things, you know, that, that witches used to meet on Sundays for for Sabbaths. And even the king, King James the um, the Seventh of Scotland, James the Second of England, wrote a book on demonology, basically saying, yeah, these witches are real and we ought to be rooting them out. And we just look back now, three, four centuries later, and say, yeah, what a load of nonsense. But, you know, maybe in four centuries time people will be looking at those national archives ufo files and say what's weird things that people used to believe that these aliens used to come and zoom around and kidnap people you know so it we we owe a debt to future generations and to future generations of scholars to preserve this stuff and to make it available in the same way that other historical records are, are available well hopefully this podcast will be part of that endeavor i hope so uh, thank you very much for for coming on david it's been incredibly interesting mm-hmm. Um, uh, and until next time, live long and prosper. <laughs> nanu, nanu.